0: Buy tickets now at TheMoth.org slash virtualmainstage. From PRX, this is The Moth Radio Hour. I'm Sarah Austin Jeunesse from The Moth, and I'll be your host this time. The Moth is a place for true stories told live without notes. Storytellers of all types stand on stage in bars, clubs, and theaters, and they tell their stories to audiences all around the country. We take the best stories from these nights and we share them here with you. This is an all-Australian episode of the Moth Radio Hour. The three tellers are Australian and the stories were recorded at the Melbourne Writers Festival and the Perth International Arts Festival. I love Aussie slang, and I asked one of our storytellers, Magda Zubanski, a popular character actor down under, to give us a cheat sheet. Can you tell us some of your very favorite Australian phrases that we should all know? <laughs> Please. Oh, yes, the,
1: Americans, the Americans love this. We, we shorten everything. We out everything. So as you said, uh, for breakfast is brekkie. Lipstick is lippy. So hang on a sec while I touch up my lippy. Um, a biscuit is a bickie. What
0: else is there? Oh, there's endless. what was what,
1: some of the other ones? Yeah. Um Shardy and Cardi. Oh yeah. A glass of Shardy, Chardonnay. Um I'll have a glass of Shardy and Makati, which is I'll have a glass <laughs> of Chard- Chardonnay while I'm wearing my cardigan. A glass of Shardy and Makardi.
0: Um and you what do you you what do you call flip flops? Songs.
1: I oh. yeah. And try wearing that. Um, try wearing those under your hipster jeans. See
0: how you go. We'll hear Magda Zubanski's story later this hour. Our first storyteller is Melissa Lukashenko. She told this story in front of a sold-out crowd at Melbourne Town Hall as part of the 2013 Melbourne Writers Festival. Melissa is Aboriginal, and the first few sentences of this recording are in Bundjalung language in aboriginal culture you must always acknowledge the local traditional people before you speak on their land in fact this acknowledgement or prayer of sorts preceded every public event at the Melbourne Writers Festival here's Melissa live at the Moth
2: in 2004 A real estate agent drove me, my husband Bill, and our young daughter Grace down a winding country road. The road was near Mullumbimby in northern New South Wales, and on either side, horses and cattle grazed. The hills that surrounded this valley were cloaked in lush rainforest, home to king parrots and paddy melons. And just on the other side of those hills, we could hear the booming of the Great Pacific Ocean on the coast at New Brighton. It was a paradise in miniature. And for all that real estate agent knew, we were just another cashed-up couple, trying to make the sea change that all of Australia was dreaming of. But in truth, there was something else going on. Because this was Bunjalung jargon, this was Bunjalung country my ancestral land, land that my grandmothers had been forced off. And I was determined that my daughter was going to grow up on that ancestral land. I wanted her to swim in Bunjilung creeks and rivers. I wanted her to walk with us barefoot on those long North New South Wales beaches. After almost a decade of following Bill's foreign aid career around Australia and the world I'd put my foot down it was time I said for our daughter to learn how to be not just Aboriginal but how to be Bundjalung on our own country and so after some argument some debate and discussion Bill relented we bought 30 acres in that same valley with an old wooden farmhouse on it we settled in, I built connections amongst my grandmother's people, wrote novels and bred Arabian horses. It was a sweet life there on that sacred land. And Grace thrived. She did swim in Bunjalung waters and she did hear Korumburra and the magpie singing her talga in the morning as the sun came up. Bill was less content, though, and as time went on, his trips overseas grew longer and more frequent. A month in the Philippines, three months in Laos, nine months in East Timor, until finally in 2007 our marriage began to crack and then crumble. By the time he came to me and said, ''I've rented a room in a friend's house and I'm moving out tomorrow.'' What I mainly felt was relief. Now divorce hits everybody hard but it hit 14-year-old Grace the hardest and I sat at my desk one morning in 2007 and I looked out on those green pastures and I looked at those Bundjalung hills and I knew that they were going to be lost to us again and I thought what's going to become of us? What's my life with my daughter going to be like, because I knew there was no way in hell I could afford as a single parent to stay on that land. What am I going to do with all these horses, I thought. Will I be a bag lady? And as I was pondering these unhappy questions, the phone rang. It was Bill. I'm on my way to Tweed Head's hospital, he told me, and you'd better get in a car and head up too because Grace has been taken to hospital after throwing up most of a bottle of Panadol on the floor of a school bus. I put the phone down, reeling, and burst into hot tears. Life quickly became a blur of psychologists and guilt and deep recrimination between Bill and myself. Six months later, Bill had relocated to Sydney, and Grace and I found ourselves living in Logan City, just south of Brisbane, officially one of Australia's poorest urban areas. And to me, this move wasn't terrifying. It was unwelcome, but I knew how to do it. I had the skill set, because I'd grown up as one of seven children in a working-class Brisbane family. And having spent a lot of my childhood in Logan, I knew how not to make eye contact with strangers in the street. And I knew what life was like in a suburb where the majority of people were ordinary, decent Australians, but a significant minority were prepared to sell their children's Ritalin in order to fund a heroin habit. Like some kind of weirdly reversed Charles Ryder coming upon Brideshead... I'd been there before. I knew all about it. I remember the first week we moved in and pulled up to what was going to become our uh, corner store. And for someone with a deep depressive illness, Grace could still muster an occasional wisecrack. As we pulled up to this dingy establishment, she turned to me in the car and said, Mum, she quoted from the BBC comedy uh, A League of Gentlemen, said, this is our local shop. And I turned to her and said, yes, it is our local shop, and we're locals, so we should go in. And we were just about to do so, but were interrupted by a junkie hurtling out of the doorway to projectile vomit on the concrete footpath not three metres away. We fell about snorting and leaking with laughter. So it wasn't all bad. I mean, make no mistake, I wanted out of there because I had tasted that good life in Mullumbimby and it tasted mighty sweet. But I didn't expect to live in Logan City for very long. And, in fact, in a moment of crazed optimism, I even filled out an online application form for Millionaire Hot Seat. Yes, I thought, I'll win back that big dollar and that will send us back to Bundjalung country. (laughs) But you have to understand, jokes aside, I was living a life where, as a single parent, I'd given away every extension cord I owned and thrown out every rope. My job every morning was to get up and walk, make a long and frightening journey downstairs to see if Grace had hung herself during the night. So geographic location was not my biggest priority. I drew on a lifelong study of Buddhism and I said to myself, you're poor again, so what? Suck it up. It is what it is, became my mantra. I dusted off my CV and I started working with women in prison for the first time in 20 years. We took in a homeless girl who contributed a bit of board and I started shopping at those cheap Asian supermarkets. We lived on rice and vegetables, bread, occasionally meat, never takeaways. And I just kept putting one foot in front of the other saying, your job is simply to keep your daughter alive. And I told myself I could do it. Deep down, I could feel something beginning to unravel because the truth is I wasn't sure I could do it. But at the same time, I couldn't allow myself to believe that. One day, not long before her 15th birthday, Grace asked if she could get a mohawk haircut and I was so happy that she'd asked for something underpinned by life, something that implied that she was willing to be around for more than another day or two that I scraped the money together and I took it to the hairdresser myself she came out an hour later with a sculpture on her head in red and green and purple and yellow and I smiled to see my daughter I thought maybe she'll make it after all it was the next day that Grace told me that she was really happy with the haircut and that what was troubling her was the bug inside her head that was bothering her with its efforts to get out. She scratched at her head as she told me this. And I looked at her and my heart sank because I knew this was the beginning of a journey into another level of mental illness altogether. a journey that would take us to an extended stay in the adolescent psychiatric wing of the Logan Hospital. And if I live to be a 100, I'll never forget the first day I visited Grace on that ward. I went to those big glass doors that hospitals have and waited to be let in because it was a locked ward. And I went into that antiseptic smell that hospitals have. And Grace was nowhere in sight at this point, But another Aboriginal girl was there and ignoring the warning sounds from the staff, this girl got up and ran at me. And before I had time to move, she had flung her arms around me and she had told the ward, my mother's here, she's come to take me home. And as I put my arms around this unknown girl, I felt like I was on teetering on the brink of a precipice, a precipice that Grace was in danger of falling over. And it was then that I decided that whatever it took, I would stop my daughter becoming someone who had to hug strangers in hospital wards because there was no one else to hug. With some pretty tightrope parenting over the next few weeks from me and from Bill, who visited periodically from Sydney, and the help of a very good young psychologist in the public health system, Grace slowly began to improve, marginally. Her psychosis ended. And I thought, maybe we can make it after all. Maybe the unravelling won't become any worse until... I got another phone call which left me reeling. Was I available the next week to go on Millionaire Hot Seat in Melbourne? (laughs) The following Tuesday, I was sitting opposite Eddie Maguire on national TV, grace in the audience, foot high, mohawk and all. I answered five or six questions correctly, took a pass on one and then came back to the hot seat to the final question. What is the scientific unit for the measurement of light? What is the scientific unit for the measurement of light? But you see, all those months earlier when I'd filled out the application form, they'd asked for areas of strength and areas of weakness. And if I had learned anything growing up in Logan, it is you don't telegraph your punches. (laughs) Under strengths, I put literature. Under weaknesses, I put science, and I know science. (laughs) There were four multiple-choice questions. I answered, Candela. And that night, in the hotel room, Grace and I danced and hugged and laughed and sang because on the table in front of us was a cheque signed by Eddie Maguire for (laughs) $50,000. Grace picked it up and turned to me. Her curls bounced and her eyes shone. And she said, Mum, you did it. It's our ticket home. Can you believe it? And I looked at her. I looked at that shining face. And I thought I would rip that check up and throw it in the bin if it would guarantee that smile. But I didn't have the words to explain that to her. So I just took the check off her. And I took a deep breath and I said, "Gross! you know what? It is what it is.
0: That was Melissa Lukashenko. In her early years, Melissa worked as a barmaid, a delivery driver, and a karate instructor. She's written five novels, and she recently helped establish a Brisbane-based organization called Sisters Inside, which advocates for the rights of women in the criminal justice system.
3: The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX.
0: This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Sarah Austin Janes. This next story is from Paul Carter. Paul was one of our local storytellers in the first Moth event in Australia at the Perth International Arts Festival in 2008. The theme of the night was Strangers in Strange Lands. Here's Paul Carter, Live at the mall.
4: When I was 16 years old, I got my first oil field job. And very quickly, I learned that uh, the drill floor is a dangerous place to work. I'd had uh, colleagues die horribly in front of me, uh, one guy was decapitated on a helicopter rotor blade. Uh, another guy was disemboweled uh, on the drill floor. He got his stomach stuck in some pipe. Other colleagues you know, cut limbs off. It was basically a Roman Polanski movie. It was terrifying. So I'd become quite numb. I'd work contracts, what we call HE work, hostile environment work, And I'd worked in Colombia and Nigeria. I'd worked all over Southeast Asia and Central Asia. And I saw firsthand that whatever's happening, the drilling will go on regardless. There could be a war, a jihad, a coup, an insurrection, a natural disaster. But the drilling goes on regardless and at any human cost. And I'd gone to a dark place and I only really cared about the well. And getting paid. So in this unhealthy mental state, and I was on a bit of a self-destructive binge as well, my boss decided to send me to the oil field equivalent of the Betty Ford Clinic <laughs> and I found myself in Brunei on the island of Borneo in the, in the South China Sea and I was working for a man at the time by the name of Erwin Herzeg and Irwin had a fearsome reputation in the oil business a well-deserved one, he was Yoda, he was the oracle, he was the man, and I couldn't have worked for a nicer, nicer chap. He looks like he's got a weapon-grazed temper, but he's actually a complete gentleman. One of the other guys on the crew um, was a guy by the name of Ambu Gang, who's an Iban Indian from over the border in Sarawak, and he's got the headhunter's tattoos, the bamboo tattoos on his throat. And he had three teenage boys, and they came home with a dead monkey uh, one day. And it was a female, and she was nursing an infant. So they put the infant in a bamboo bird cage, and he was too young to be away from his mother, and he was just wasting away. And Irwin and I visited Ambu, and, and we saw this pathetic little bag of skin. His little chest was pathetic, and he broke our heart immediately. So we brought him home. And of course, you got a, a staff house full of rig pigs. They looked at us and said, Ah, break its neck flush down the toilet, eat it. We said, no, no, no. We got in the car and we drove two hours to the veterinary clinic and came back with six months worth of baby monkey formula. (laughs) And I walked in and I took him out of the cage and I had this little pathetic shaking creature big enough to fit in my hand. He looked like he'd come straight from Middle Earth. He was kind of and he just broke my heart and I took it upon myself to, to raise this monkey and, and save it. So he made a sling out of a pillowcase and I had a little bot bot and and walk around And Joe grew up pretty quickly. I was brushing his teeth, you know, I, was, I was in the I was in the shower with him and for three years I literally had a monkey on my back. <laughs> he, 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 he he wrapped around my throat and I had hair then and we'd preen and it was great. It was great fun. Now, when male macaques hit monkey puberty, strange things begin to happen. Joe was head-banging in the jungle to Pearl Jam. He started smoking. Um, not, we didn't give him cigarettes, but monkey see, monkey do. And you, Some of you have got kids, I'm sure, and pets. Combine them, and you've got this little man that goes vertically up the curtains, straight across the rafters. If he gets annoyed, they'll be, you know, they'll be screaming. Everything, in fact, up to and including throwing shit. So, out of control. So, uh, I'm trying to deal with this monkey and and give him some manners, even though he was smoking and we were terrified he was going to burn the house down. (laughs) He couldn't actually light up, but anyone within 30 feet who lit a cigarette, it's gone and he's perched up somewhere. (laughs) It was horrible and he, he, perpetual spot fires were being put out. And we all knew he was going to burn the house down eventually. The other thing that he did that was quite annoying was if he needed to urinate, he'd just... <laughs> just...
5: <laughs>
4: let, let fly, and, I, and the guys got pissed off, so I said, okay, I'll teach him how to pee like a man. <laughs> so I took him into the toilet, I got him on the bowl. <laughs> and, he t- and it took about a month just to get him to stand and pee, but it would fly about all over the place. So I had to get him to lean. You know, he's leaning on the cistern, thereby achieving the right angle. <laughs> and so he would, he'd go. He was a clever little guy, he could mess with the phone, the stereo. He had a, his brain box was about the size of a peanut, so he never actually mastered mirrors, which was hilarious, because I put them all over the place, and he'd walk past the mirror and go... <laughs> he'd immediately back up. Uh, I went off and did a long campaign offshore and I got back and and the jungle would eat the house if if people were gone for a long period of time. It was like the the dunes in the desert, it would just eat the house. And I got back and everybody was away on other campaigns. And I just wanted some, some quiet time. So I walk into the laundry, I tip my offshore bag into the washing machine. I take my clothes off, I chuck them in the washing machine. And I'm knackered and I'm just padding down the hallway towards the bathroom, close the bathroom door, sitting on the toilet. And Joe came in the dog door, chattering, looking for me, calling out. I'd like to think it was because he loved me, but it was probably because he wanted a cigarette. <laughs> so I'm sitting on the bog, and, and the, this particular toilet door was made of solid teak, and it was just four-inch thick solid teak, and it didn't line up properly with the door jamb, and there was you know, a three-inch gap at the bottom. And I'm sitting there, and this face appears. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, "Hey, buddy." How you and the hands doing this, and so I, I got some loo roll and I started sticking it under the door, and he, we were playing a game. We played games like that, all the time. Then he jumps up on the door lock, and the key was on the outside. He turns the key in the lock... <laughs> ...fucks off with the key, doesn't he? So, so I'm, <laughs> I'm over at the edge of the door, and this bathroom's a concrete box. I'm not tunneling out of there, I'm, I'm stuffed, basically. So I, I think fast, so I grab the shower curtain, shove it under the gap and think if I call him back and distract him, offer him a Cuban or something, maybe he'll drop the, drop the key and I can pull it through and get out, no, he was gone. I could hear him with the bloody thing, banging things with it. <laughs> 14 hours later. <laughs> I'm getting ready to cry myself to sleep in the bath. <laughs> Finally figured it out and got the, got the hooks that the shower curtain w- was on straightened them the mouth knocked the pins out of the, the hinges. I couldn't start and hutch the door out. It opened inwards. Finally, I stagger into the hallway. And he's sitting there with the key on the lounge, channel surfing. <laughs> and sees me and goes, Oof, out the dog door. I didn't see him for a week. <laughs> and then there was a festival in the village. It's called Harry Raya. And it coincides every 15 years with Chinese New Year. And... I was there for that, and the whole village goes completely mental. Irwin goes over the border and comes back with whatever he can get his hands on, which turned out to be a trunk full of firecrackers and a bottle of tequila. <laughs> so what do two grown men do when they're in the jungle with nothing to do and everyone else is awake? We drank the tequila, I shoot off some firecrackers, and our whole place was littered in coconuts. And You pick up the coconut, you could push a firecracker into it, light it with a cigarette, <laughs> hurl it down the Jalan, Oh, boom, boom. Well, and there was a huge concussion coconut would vaporize, great fun so we're both staggering around doing shots hurling these coconuts at each other and bang 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 and I got this particularly big one and I let it go down the road and Joe went straight between my legs going after it I break into a sprint a drunken sprint and I'm trying to close the gap and I didn't, I didn't get there and he, he, jumped, he thought it was a game you know. he jumped up on the Coconut, and this smoke billowing up. Bang! He flies off into the bush. And I scream. And I run in and I find him. And I picked him up and he was completely... Everything was broken. And there was blood coming out of his ears, his mouth, nose. You know... I started CPR, you know. Erwin could see what, what was unfolding. And he said, get in the car. I got in the car. I was just dissolved in tears. We drove to the Shell Emergency Medical Center and most big evil oil multinationals have a facility whereby if someone cuts something off, it doesn't matter how remote it is, there'll be a surgeon standing by 24-7. You know. So we roll up to this place and bang on the door and he opens the door and sees two drunk roughnecks and a dead monkey. <laughs> and he tells us where to go. And Owen got a hold of him, shoved him back inside, closed the door and locked it. And he said, now you're going to look at this monkey, or I'm going to do to you that I wouldn't do to a farm animal. <laughs> and the guy went, he looked at me, I'm there. <laughs> and he went, I guess the stethoscope, and he starts <laughs> probing. And he says, this monkey is dead. And I went, OK. We got back in the car. We drove back to the, the staff house, and I got the shovel out of the shed. And I found a pretty spot. And I dug a hole, and I, uh, and I buried him with his favorite Pearl Jam CD, a pack of cigarettes, the last can of Heineken, and the bathroom key. <laughs> and I filled the hole up and I pushed it down with my feet. And I was gutted. I didn't speak to anybody for about two months. Pretty much immediately went back to Sydney after three years in the jungle. It was difficult. And this monkey had really affected me. And I slowly got back into doing the HE work and slotted back in, into life, the offshore life again. But this time, things were different and my eyes were wide open. And my brain box was just a sponge, and a big filter, and everything went in and went out and down on paper. Because of that little prick, he changed everything. And I'm absolutely delighted to say that just two months ago, I stood in the hospital just after the doctor had started my daughter's heart and I'm holding her in my hand. And I thought about Joe again, but for the first time in 10 years, I felt really good about it. Thank you.
0: That was Paul Carter. This story took place nearly 20 years ago, but Paul says, it's as clear and sharp in my mind as Japanese steel. If I think on it too long, it will cut me. He said, after Joe died, I realized life was a more valuable commodity than hydrocarbons. Paul is now married and a father of two, and he's filled four books with stories from his life on the rigs. Coming up, our final story, a famous comedic actress confronts her biggest fear inherited from her father, a Polish assassin.
3: Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by the Public Radio Exchange, PRX.org.
0: I'm Sarah Austin-Genest, and you're listening to the Moth Radio Hour. Our last storyteller is Magda Zubanski. Magda is one of Australia's most beloved comics.
1: Um, In Australia, I've played kind of like your Saturday Night Live sort of characters, like big, grotesque, funny, you know, and... um, A lot of the fun is gotten from just making yourself look really shocking and I've never backed away from that at all. You know, I just think, you know, the uglier, the funnier generally in that kind of sketch comedy. Like I said, I have been famous a long time in this country and in shows that have been very popular and so I enjoy a really great relationship with the Australian public. Um, But it's a sort of a set kind of a relationship. Like we all know what the deal is and, and because this wasn't comedy, I just, I was in a very strange zone, Sarah. I really was. I was incredibly nervous. I think my diaphragm was sort of strangling me (laughs) up around my throat. I couldn't breathe.
0: (laughs) To calm her nerves in the green room before the show at the Melbourne Writers Festival, Magda started a contest where she and the other storytellers spit gum into a bucket across the room. Magda won. Here's Magda Zubanski live at the Mass.
5: You may or may not know that for a while I was the very public face of Jenny Craig weight loss, and I lost a lot of weight, which was great. But then I started to put the weight back on, which wasn't so great, and I got a phone call from the publicist and she said, "Um, "Oh, darling, I've had a phone call and the paparazzi have got some shots of you. on Bondi Beach in your bathers. (laughs) Now, I'm not an especially vain woman, but there are not too many women I know who would feel completely comfortable with having candid unflattering pictures of themselves uh, in their wet clinging bathers, splashed across every newsstand in the country. And for just a moment I felt so vulnerable that I wanted to cry because I knew what was in store. I was about to be Kirsty Allied. <laughs> I was going to be publicly shamed for my failure to keep the weight off. And that was not a prospect that I relished, but more than that, there was a, a deeper and a far more disturbing fear. And I felt as though a cold hand had reached deep into the depths of my soul and was rattling the cage of a long buried fear that I had completely forgotten that I had. And that fear was a fear of the mob. That somehow I would do something unwittingly and that people would turn into a an unreasoning, nasty, irrational mob that would attack me. And it must seem strange to hear me say that because I've been famous in this country for a very long time and I have a great relationship with the public and people are very nice to me. And in fact, one of the nice things that people say is they'll often say, Magda, you know, you're so brave with the characters, the comedy characters that you portray in your performance. You're so brave... And I think often when they're saying that, what they're saying is, you're so brave because you're prepared to let yourself look unattractive on national television. And I can't really relate to that because, to be honest, willingness to look unattractive has never, ever entered into my calculus of what it means to be brave. And I can't, there's another, I can't really relate to that word brave and I can't really claim it. And that's because of my name. You know me as Magda Zabanski, but the way my father would have said my name is Magda Szubanski, because I'm half Polish. And that Polishness completely determines how I feel about that word, brave. Uh, When my father died, Mrs Piaczak, came up to me at the funeral and she said, Magda, you must understand, only the bravest of the brave were asked to do what your father did in the war. In 1939, when my father was 15, Hitler invaded Poland and the world as my father knew it ceased to exist. His world of boating and skiing trips to Zakopane and nights at the theatre was over, replaced by six years of brutal Nazi occupation. And in 1943, in possibly the darkest hour of that occupation, my father, who was only 19, was recruited to become an assassin in a top-secret counterintelligence unit And the chief job of that that unit was to protect the high command of the uh, Polish resistance. And the way that they did that was to assassinate collaborators. And just to make it very clear, my father was on the good side fighting the Nazis. But the way that he was doing that was by killing his own people. the crimes that these collaborators, Polish collaborators had committed was that they were telling secrets of the resistance to the Germans, and some of them were telling the Gestapo where Jewish people were hiding. And it's important to know that Poland, under the Nazi regime, was the only country where the penalty for hiding a Jew was the death sentence, and in fact just even knowing of the existence of a Jew and not reporting it would likely get you killed. And um, my father's parents, my grandparents, hid many Jewish people during the war. But, of course, I didn't know that when I was a little kid, you know, nor did I know that my father was an assassin. You know, I just thought he was an ordinary dad out there mowing the lawn in his terry-toweling hat. (laughs) And if if you'd known my dad, you wouldn't have picked it either because he was a very warm, affectionate kind of guy. But there were hints. It was like swimming in a warm river and suddenly you would hit an icy cold patch that would just make your heart stop. I didn't really know an awful lot about the war as a kid and um, what I did know was from TV and movies. And of course in those movies it was always about American soldiers, occasionally British, very rarely French. But I never, ever saw any Polish people. And so I kind of came to the conclusion that my father must have been fairly peripheral to the war and maybe he wasn't you know, really there in a big way in the thick of it. Until one day when I was about eight or nine and I was sitting with my family in the round- lounge room of our home in North Croydon and we were watching a documentary and it was about the Holocaust and this was nothing like the war I'd seen in the movies. And as I saw those images of ordinary people, not soldiers, women, children, old people, little kids pleading for their lives, gaunt eyes staring from behind barbed wire, piles of naked bodies being bulldozed into pits, I was beside myself utterly beside myself with grief and despair and a kind of helpless rage, but also this like a, a kind of incomprehension. I couldn't understand what could happen that could make people do that to one another. And just at that moment, my father looked at the television, television screen and he said, ah, That's the street where we used to live before it was rezoned as part of the Warsaw ghetto. And suddenly I realized that that horror wasn't out there. It was right here in our lounge room. And I looked at my father, I suppose, for kind of guidance and validation and comfort, but he was completely unaffected, completely impassive. And I felt then that there was a huge gulf that separated us. And as I grew older, I realised that the crucial difference was that he had been right there in the thick of it. And that immediate threat of the Nazis, of death, of torture, of being sent to a concentration camp, meant that he had had to perform a kind of emergency emotional triage and he had jettisoned absolutely every single feeling that didn't support his survival. But I hadn't been there. And without that urgent uh, imperative to dissociate, I had the luxury of having a normal human response to this horror, and I was terrified. Uh, When I looked at my father, I saw his fearlessness and it was reassuring But I saw something else that eviscerated me. I saw his discomfort with my feelings. And I saw his subtle, um, almost imperceptible, but unmistakable, complete contempt for my fear. And in that moment, I vowed I would never feel fear again. And so began a kind of lifelong masterclass in the art of dissociation, as taught to me by my father, the assassin. But of course, you know, I hadn't conquered the fear. All I'd really done was to drive it into the deepest, darkest corner of my unconscious. So that as I grew up and matured, the fear didn't. It remained the fear of a nine-year-old girl, petrified, And so now, when the publicist was waiting for my response, in an instant, my world had changed. And what had started out as an innocent swim on Bondi Beach had become a moment of reckoning. And now the paparazzi had me in their sights. And that fear came screaming out of my unconscious, in my face. And I was reduced to being that nine-year-old girl again. And I felt as though every irrational fear that I had about human nature, about what humans are capable of, was about to come true. And the publicist said, so darling, what do you want me to do? And I could feel my world crumbling. I could feel the ground giving way beneath my feet. And just as I was about to fall, something happened. And... It was something I didn't see coming, something completely unexpected and a voice that I didn't know I had came out of me and I said, fuck (laughs) them. Do your worst. Do your worst, paparazzi. You are not going to shame me off the beach. I'm going to go down to Bondi and I'm going to be a fat middle-aged lady, along with the supermodels and the muscle men, I'm going to wear my wet, clingy bathers, and there's not a freaking thing you can do about it. (laughs) So they published the photos. Um, But because I'd refused to participate in the shame game, the, the photos were unflattering, but the headline said Magda sports her new beach body. Um, it was quite crazy, but, but nothing terrible happened, and the Australian public were lovely to me. Uh, but this, this isn't about me saying, oh, gee, look, you know, I was brave like my father would have wanted me to be. I'm the second generation The luxury and the very great privilege of being able to feel the normal feelings that my father, Paul Bugger, couldn't feel. And finally, I was able to forgive myself for feeling fear. Thanks.
0: That was Magda Zubanski. Magda is the star of the television comedy Kath and Kim, and she's voiced characters in Babe and Happy Feet. And as she told me, she's the fourth most popular person in Australia. At one point, Magda, I have to be honest and tell you, once I got to Melbourne, we had a conversation and we were talking about which way to take the story and when to rehearse in person. And I thought that there was a chance you might drop out.
1: Oh, yeah, I wanted to pull the pin. I really, I really <laughs> freaked out because, you know, it's extremely sensitive material. I mean, the, the stuff that my father was doing, um, the relations between Polish and Jewish people, and there's a very large Polish-Jewish um, Holocaust survivor group in Melbourne, and, and, you know, you have to be so sensitive about what you say in, in the best way. Like, you don't want to just blunder in. And suddenly I was like, oh, my God, what am I doing? You know, I just don't have time to do this properly and responsibly and I really freaked out and I actually, I rang you and I pulled the pin, I said, I'm out, (laughs) I can't do it. But luckily, you and I had, you talked me down off the ledge (laughs) Um, and um, uh, I was really pleased that I did it. But it was probably the most nervous, I'm normally not nervous when I talk. Um, Unlike most people, I'm still really at ease. But I was nervous doing this one. I was really nervous, but gee, I'm glad I did it.
0: You, I just listened to it again before talking to you tonight, and you accomplished so much in such a short time. The details are so precise. And it, it ends up being uh, a, a testament, really, an ode uh, to your father. I mean, I teared up at the very end of the story.
1: Well, I think that whole, um, you know, because I've been writing a book and you can really be expansive, to suddenly then try and just boil that down into something that's the most powerful expression of it um, was, you know, it was really difficult. It was really difficult because I am sort of, you know, in that process of letting my mind run all over the place. Um, And the responsibility I felt to, you know, the the Polish non-Jewish experience of the Holocaust really hasn't been told, and I feel a huge, you know responsibility in that regard and to get it right um, uh, and um, so, so there, was, there was all of that but but I don't know if I told you this but I think I might have afterwards I was thinking, I thought, God this is not it's so completely not what my normal style of communication is, I really am known here for doing comedy and a little bit people know me for being serious but not a lot and I couldn't read the room I just didn't know how it was going over at all, I had no sense of how it had landed, I really didn't. And then when I came out, I was going around the corner, and there was a family, like a middle-aged mother and her kids who are in their twenties, about six of them, bawling, just crying. And I, as I approached, I said, "Oh, we just heard you speak. You know, we're we're Jewish, and we." And the mother said, "I so resonated with what you said." And then the daughter said to me, um, "Oh, I." Finally, I understand my grandmother.
0: Is there a special way that you say goodbye?
1: <laughs> I always say ta doll.
0: Really? How, wait, say that slowly. I have to learn it. How do you say it?
1: <laughs> ta doll. Okay. We say doll instead of darling. Do you yeah. say that, do you? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, doll. Yeah, well, we say dal. Ta-da, doll.
0: That was Magda Zubanski, and that's it for the Moth Radio Hour. We hope you'll join us next time. Ta-ta, doll.
3: Your host this hour was Sarah Austin Janess. Sarah also directed the stories in the show. The rest of Moth's directorial staff includes Catherine Burns, Sarah Haberman, Jennifer Hickson, and Meg Bowles. Production support from Jenna Weiss Berman and Brandon Echter. Moth stories are true as remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. Moth events are recorded by Argo Studios in New York City, supervised by Paul Ruwest. Our theme music is by The Drift. Other music in this hour from Australian musicians Aramis and Blake Noble. All the music we use in the Moth Radio Hour can be found at themoth.org. The Moth is produced for radio by me, Jay Allison, at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, with help from Vicki Merrick. This hour was produced with funds from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. The Moth Radio Hour is presented by the public radio exchange, prx.org. For more about our podcast, for information on how to pitch your own story, and everything else, go to our website, themoth.org.
0: Moth Story Slams are back. Held on Mondays beginning in February, join us for our weekly Open Mic Story Slam competition. February's theme